you know, I mean, just a, a natural human inclination. It's easier to obey someone that you love, you know? Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am joined today in a seedy motel room for the last two episodes of our series on JP2 and the New Evangelization with Dave the Swagger Van Vickle. How you doing, Dave? I'm I'm good. I'm good. I this has been fun to record all these episodes and hang out hang just <laughs> chill so what did you talk about in your uh fancy talk yesterday that you were unprepared for because we were recording this <laughs> uh it w- well the title was um it was called the Effective- reciprocity no between no, faith no it was effectively <laughs> proclaiming the charisma and inviting a response and and that's what i talked about it was nothing special <laughs> effectively proclaiming the charisma and inviting a response did you get a lot of questions yeah yeah, yeah. Were they good questions? It was a, it was a packed room. Really a packed room. Yeah. Oh, I didn't totally think that packed. would happen for you. Oh wow! <laughs> the room was no, there were three chairs in the room, but no, I'm just yeah. and, and all one. three were sort of full. Yeah, right. Uh, they confused it for the nursery. Um, yeah. yeah. Last night, while you yesterday during the afternoon, while you were giving your talk, I went back to the hotel with my family because I'm at a different hotel, and I went back to the hotel with my family and took a nap nice it was so beautiful it was so beautiful (laughs) my kids were chilling it was beautiful so so let me just tell you something so i've been excited for all three documents but this document it was life-changing for me Mm -hmm. so i'm really excited how old were you when you read this one uh i was a junior in high school okay you went to a better high school than i did um oh it was not for school i just oh okay i have i've heard of it in when i was in high school but because my parents were ewtn fanatics but right, um, right, right. i didn't read this until i started studying moral theology at franciscan and okay. this became quickly my favorite document of jp2 because it's all a moral theology and this is what I loved about moral theology, the, see, the issues that he wrestles see, with. See, what's funny is I, I do not like moral theology. Because of this document. <laughs> no, I, no I, I love the document. I just don't like moral theology. Oh, know. man, I do. I love it. I love it because uh, I love it. If you go to the third part of the catechism, Life in Christ, and you go to section one, that's the stuff I love about morality, the foundational moral um, yeah. theology and all that stuff, freedom law, which is a lot of what this encyclical is all about. So right. just it give was you, foundational, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so let me just give you a little bit of background on Veritati Splendor, which is actually what we're talking about. I don't know if we said that yet. We're going to do two episodes on the longest of all the encyclicals. Um, this was number 10 of 14 of the major encyclicals of JP2. It was published on August 6th, 1993. Good Lord, I can't talk. At the Feast of the Transfiguration of the Lord the 15th year of his pontificate. So this is um, after he has already written things about evangelization, about catechesis. Um, He has 10 encyclicals in because here's the deal, what arose after the Vatican council. So everyone always tells the story. There are two groups, the, uh, the uh, communio communio group. And what's the other group called concilium? No, something like that. Yes. And uh, these two groups were kind of the progressives. And then the communio is like the JP2, the Pope Benedict, all those good people. So when we're talking about the Novel Theology guys, right, uh, these are the people that were seen by some as like radicals, but they weren't. They just weren't the 
standard Thomas scholastics of like Father Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, those type of people. No, they were yeah, yeah, they were father, church father people. Yeah. They were church yeah. father people. So what ends up happening is um the concilium group actually it was like a, a political race to see who could get more chairs in faculty departments, all of this stuff, all across Europe, all across America. They, and they both have journals that yeah, they publish. And they both have huge journals that were read by people all over the world. Comunio uh, ends up, there's a guy named Father Fessio, who's a Jesuit, who starts Ignatius Press, and he's a Comunio guy. And so he just starts publishing all of the Comunio stuff, the authors, the books, you know, Charles Journet, Hans Urs von Balthasar. De Lubach. De Lubach, all of these wonderful names that are considered to be the theology of Vatican II comes from a lot of these guys. And so what ends up happening, though, is the the kind of the great game of politics of trying to acquire more theological seats and all this stuff keeps happening. And the progressive side absolutely wins. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so by the time you get to like 1975, most faculty chairs appointments were by the, the concilium side. And so what ends up happening is the rise of the JP2 papacy. Because Pope Paul VI was almost shut out as a pope. Like Pope Benedict said, the the limits of my authority is the threshold of that door. Because so few cardinals would even remotely obey him, right? And which is just shocking and terrifying. It is. It's to weird hear. to hear. Yeah. So, but JP two was a force of nature, especially at this time uh, in the early years of his pontificate. And this is year fifteen. You know, he would die in what two thousand and five. So we have him coming and he realizes that, especially as someone who has been through the academic system, like this is influencing Catholics by and large. These were people who called themselves the second magisterium, yeah. that they were to judge the living magisterium of the bishops in the in <laughs> union with the Pope. And so what he realizes over time, not realizes, but he comes into greater and greater confrontation with these people and their false views of morality. And he'll highlight, and we'll go through some of those. So he writes this encyclical to not just address a moral issue like the social question that Ram Navarum does, but he says we have to actually call all of the Catholic Church's teaching and reflect, this is a direct quote, paragraph four, it seems necessary to reflect on the whole of the church's moral teaching with the precise goal of recalling certain fundamental truths of Catholic doctrine, which in the present circumstances risk being distorted or denied. Wow. So, yeah. And I want to, I want to just uh, kind of make sure and point out that I, I'm sure some of our listeners are, are from a different school of this, mm -hmm. of this, you know, and that you may have some, some issues with Catholic moral theology. I mean, we, we get emails and things like that. And I just hope that you'll like, fully embrace this document intellectually, yeah. you know, and to really read it and let the arguments play out in your mind that you'll kind of dig into this because right now, like we, we're reaping the fruits and it's, it's rotten fruit. I mean, it is of terrible moral theology for a lot, for years and years and years. Yeah. And, 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 you know, we, we use phrases like the primacy of conscience and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and it's not like Pope John Paul doesn't understand these things, right? He's going to understand it better than probably even the theologians who promoted it. And and he addresses all of these issues. So I just like, you know, approach it with an open mind. Yeah. And so he asked this, um, one, he frames it this way. It is no longer a matter of limited and occasional dissent, yeah. right? But of an overall and systematic calling into question traditional moral doctrine. At the root of these presuppositions is more or less obvious influence of currents of thought, which end by detaching human freedom from its essential 
and constitutive relationship to truth. He says a little bit later, this is encountered even in seminaries and faculties of theology. And he said, here's the question that the whole document is here to answer. In particular, the question is asked, do the commandments of God, which are written on the human heart and are part of the covenant. I love that biblical yeah. language also because I'm a nerd for Scott Hahn really have the capacity to clarify the daily decisions of individuals and entire societies. Is it possible to obey God and thus love God and neighbor without respecting these commandments in all circumstances? Wow. And then he says this, uh, also an opinion is frequently heard, which questions the intrinsic and unbreakable bond between faith and morality as if membership in the church and her internal unity were to be decided on the basis of faith alone. While in the sphere of morality, a pluralism of opinions and of kinds of behaviors could be tolerated. These being left to the judgment of the individual subjective conscience, which Dave just mentioned, or to the diversity of social and cultural context. So let's break it down for y'all Barney style. What the Pope is trying to do is to correct widespread denial of the role of the natural law written on every human heart that is reflected in the judgment of conscience that we have to affirm, right? But also that the church actually has moral authority, not just authority over the, over the revealed doctrines, but how to live, right? We always say faith and morals, how to live the Christian life. Like morals gets reduced to just a law. Like, am right. I obeying a law? That is not the church conception, which this document bears out of what it means to be moral. What it means to be moral is the sequela Christi, which he says in Latin. And that's why it justifies me using it. Uh, he's, I don't know why I did this with my finger. I wagged my little finger at, at Dave, but the idea of the sequela Christi being a Christian, being moral means the following of Christ. And so what, what this is doing, what is at stake when we divorce morality from faith and saying, okay, you clerics, you ecclesiastics, you get to talk about transubstantiation and the Trinity, but moral theology, that's diverse opinions. Right. You know, we got to involve right. psychology and all this stuff. And he's saying, okay, if we follow that line of thought, we have ruined all of Christianity, especially Christian witness. So do we really want to go there? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is, and you're, you're seeing this played out right now in America, right? This idea yeah. of like. Uh, keep out of our keep out of our doctor's off appointments. You know, like the whole keep thing your rosaries off my ovaries. Keep your rosaries off my ovaries. That was a classic anti-Catholic oh, yeah, pro-choice thing. Oh yeah, and I've seen it all over DC in these marches. It's crazy. Yeah. Oh yeah, big time. Yeah. So I mean, I think like it. it this is we are living in the crisis that he's describing. It was. It was not near. I mean, he saw this. He was prophetic. He saw mm. it coming. We're, we're to the nth degree from yeah. when he wrote this. I also want to point out that this this document is in continuity with the documents that we've been studying over the last mm. uh, several episodes. Yeah, uh, you know, he starts it out by talking about reflecting on the face of Christ, right? Reflecting on Christ, which is a you know a, a major point in both Redemptor Ominous and Redemptor Miss, uh, Mission of the Redeemer. And uh, <laughs> I'm not going to do Latin. Yeah, it's right. too early. It is. It is too early. Uh, is this contemplation of Christ, right? This con and the primacy of Christ uh, that will that will remain throughout this document, and in particular in the chapter that we're going to cover right now, it, it's about this, you know, the good and Jesus being the authority on the good. What, yeah. what do we do? Yeah, and so uh, two things to kind of round out the context of this encyclical Veritati Splendor. 
So the Pope is going to get into some very deep moral theology, and some of it you might not know. In fact, the majority of it is handled in chapter two, where he really aggressively goes after like proportionalism and consequentialism and other things like that, and fundamental option theory. These are things that you might not know. It is still absolutely like you might be like, why do I have to know this stuff? It is absolutely filtered into the background of the conversation on morality. So, for instance, fundamental option. As long as I'm fundamentally, uh, you know, open to God, I've made that once for all life choice for God. Why does it matter if I use contraception? If I'm fundamentally open to life, if I have three kids, why can't I contracept here and there when, you know, whatever. And so he has to address these questions and he uses, this is the thing. He uses discipleship of Christ, which is what we're all about here at EKSB. We evangelize so as to make men disciples, right? He uses discipleship and the sequela Christi following Christ as the moral guide point right? As the North star of Christian morality. It's not the natural law or the commandments, even though that takes a huge component of this because morality is, is made up of (laughs) the commandments and all this stuff and the natural law. But what he's asking ultimately is the point that I brought up with my buddy, Brian Greenfield and that line over and over again, what the Pope wants to do is respond to man's authentic desires. And in that desires, the desire for happiness, for justice, for peace, right? For unity, for true love with unity, with your brothers and, and ultimately freedom. Yeah. Mostly free. Right? Yeah. But the distortion comes in with original sin. So the context that he's working here is okay. 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 What we need to do is make first things first. So chapter one is a beautiful, I think deeply beautiful meditation on discipleship. On, really. on, yes. Right. On Matthew's gospel where the rich young man or the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to enter into eternal life? So that's where we turn now. <laughs> so in, in this chapter one, uh, he, he reflects on the rich young man. We all know the story. Uh, the rich young man comes and asks him, what, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life. He, he doesn't just, you know, Jesus is like a master rabbi, right? He like leads this man on a little meditation of his own uh, and tells him about the commandments, right? He says, I've done all these, what are next? And the Pope enters into this discussion and he has this beautiful line at the end of the, the paragraph six where he says, uh, in order to make this encounter with Christ possible, God willed his church. Indeed, the church wishes to serve this single end, that each person may be able to find Christ in order that Christ may walk with each person the path of life. What the Pope is saying here is that while the rich young man approached Christ in his humanity, in in, in the incarnation, right, when he walked on earth, we approach the church and we approach Christ once again, and we should be approaching him saying, what are those things we need to do to be free, to, to be at peace, to have eternal life? Yeah, if you're new to reading Pope John Paul II's papal encyclicals, um, you have to realize they are all they all spring from and return to a meditation on Scripture and almost always a gospel passage. So um, in paragraph 70 says, in the young man who Matthew's gospel does not name, we can recognize every person who consciously or not approaches Christ, the redeemer of man, and questions him about morality. For the young man, the question is not so much about rules to be followed, but about the full full meaning of life. In paragraph 80 says, people today need to turn to Christ once again in order to receive from him the answer to their questions about what is good and what is evil. Christ is the teacher, the risen one who has life in himself and who is always present in his church and in the world. It is he who opens up the faithful, the book of scriptures, and by fully revealing the Father's will, teaches the truth about moral action. So you can't separate faith from morals. 
So yeah, and and he moves. So in in uh, paragraph nine, mm. I, I I think this is so. It's so telling of our generation right now because he has the discussion where, where Jesus says, "Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Uh, follow the commandments, okay?" And then Pope John Paul kind of digs into this. He says, "In the versions of the evangelist Mark and Luke, the question is phrased in this way: Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone." Before answering the questions, Jesus wishes the young man to have a clear idea of why he asks his question. The good teacher points out to him and to all of us that the answer to the question. What good must I do to have eternal life can only be found by turning one's mind and heart to the one who is good. No one is good but God alone. Only God can answer the questions about what is good because he is the good itself. This is like, I, you know, I, I'm going to oversimplify this to prove a point about our society right now. I think we expect so little morally of Catholics right now mm-hmm. because we don't realize that in a real relationship with Jesus Christ, in a real relationship with God, they are able to accomplish that weighty decalogue, that yeah. weighty rule of yeah. Christ, right? The, the, the rule of love. Don't you think that, that we sell people short right now? Oh, I think that's the number one sin. There was a, a guy who was talking with Bishop Barron, and he said, I, t- I saw a young man, buff muscles, sitting on a standing on a street corner and the car was driving by and he saw him and he was holding two huge shopping bags for his girlfriend or wife or whatever. And he looks so miserable. And he said, that is the person that the church has missed. Like, don't you know, there's something more than this? Like, don't you know? And you know, he's just using as a silly illustration, but this idea that because no one is living heroically holy lives, especially not on mass of Catholics, where it used to be you could count on the Catholic vote for a particular thing because it was righteous. It was good. It was moral. Now we are as divided as the rest of America. It's just, oh, oh, you're a liberal, you're a conservative, you're a this, you're a that. And so what we want to do is reframe it in the in the in the proposition of the gospel to realize that these young man's questions, as the Pope says, are really religious questions right? This young man is searching for God. And that's what the Pope really wants to hammer. It's like, what do, what do I do to be a good person? What does it mean to be a good person? What does it mean to enter into life? What does it mean to be have eternal life, go to heaven, whatever? Ultimately, what we are asking when we are talking about moral goodness is we are asking about God. What does it mean to be in union with God? Yeah. And, and you know, it's, I think it's just, it's so important, like, I, for, particularly for Americans, like, we kind of equate morality with law. Yeah. And it's like you can speed and not hurt anyone. Yeah. You know? And so we think like as long as we're not victimless crime. Yeah, as long as we're not hurting anyone, right? Yeah. Then it's not it's not evil. And that isn't the way it works. And also, you can and opposite that, you can't not hurt anyone and not be in and not be in a relationship with God. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you need that relationship. He is our soul, right? He's our life. He's what vivifies us. And so to, to think that you can trade one for the other or yeah. have one, not the other, is ridiculous. In her book, The Stoicism. Genesis uh, the genesis of Gender, Dr. Abigail Favale has this great line where she's analyzing the sexual revolution and where it is now. And it's like, after all this profound moral theology and moral philosophy, all this stuff of the ages, like modern sexual ethics is consent. And that's it. And then she says, and this is the indictment. She says, this is it. For in the moral sphere... 
sex is nothing more than not rape. Yep. And that's it. Yep. And it's like, okay, so we go from the theology of the body to just consent and that's it. And so what we want to do is repristinate the moral question. We want to make it new again. As Chesterton said, just kidding, no. just kidding. <laughs> uh, what is man and what must he do uh, becomes clear as soon as God reveals himself. I love that phrase. The moral life presents itself as the response due to the many gratuitous initiatives taken by God out of love for man. It is a response of love. So first and foremost, the moral life is a response to the love that God has already shown us in creating us, redeeming us, sanctifying us in his offer of salvation in implanting desires within our heart that can only be satisfied in him alone. And that's what moves us. So the good belongs to God and in belonging to him and obeying him and walking humbly with him, that is what transforms us in the heart to be good. Right. And, and then he begins uh, paragraph 11 there, the statement that there's only one who is good, thus brings us back to the first tablet. Yeah. That was like a big phrase, right? For, for the, yeah. the Hebrews, the first tablet, right? What is the uh, first tablet? What do you mean? What, to our audience who might not know what the first oh, tablet oh. is. Oh, well, he explains. Of the commandments, which calls us to acknowledge God as the one Lord of all and to worship <laughs> him alone for his infinite holiness. Maybe I should just shut up and let you finish a sentence. Uh, maybe. 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 Or the Pope. Or the, for the Pope. Yeah. So the first tablet of the two tablets of the Decalogue, the first is love of God. The second is love of nature. Right. And, right? and it would have been, it would have been a... Um, probably everyday understanding for mm -hmm. a Hebrew at that time, for a Jew at that time, that all of the law is contained in the first tablet. All of it is contained in the first tablet. And I, it, I think it's an important point to mention, and particularly for evangelists, particularly for people who are in apostolate, that sin, there's many reasons, woundedness, original sin, all these kinds of things, okay? There are many reasons, but when it comes down to it, we go back to the garden, and it's really trying to make ourselves our own God, right? Yep. We're deciding to make our own universe, our own rules. It is funny, like, you will be as God's knowing good and evil, and the way it's often explained is you get to decide what's right and wrong. And it's funny that the <laughs> modern turn um, in Immanuel Kant on morality is the phrase autonomy, Autonomy is a, a, a Greek compound word, otos and nomos, meaning self-law. You give yourself the law. Cool. And it's this subjective. And it's like, it's it's almost as if it is entirely predicated on, yeah, no, the serpent had it right. right? And it's terrifying. <laughs> um, but so in, in there's one quote that I wanted to say um, in connecting this with evangelization, right? Some of the lines you might have heard, like that the Pope is coming against, is this notion, like you heard faith alone, right? Right. He said like, oh, well, faith alone, there's this fear over here, and then there's a diversity of opinion on. Well, some of that is actually brought out by Lutheranism in the Reformation. And so what you're seeing is, in large part, a Catholicism that is overly accommodating in the ecumenical side, what we would call a false irenicism, a false ecumenism, where it actually is adopting wholesale Lutheran theologies of the, the two worlds. Basically, I got my sphere with God, and then I got my sphere of humanity, right? And so what ends up happening is they relegate, because they want to divorce the church from being able to tell you how to live your life, mostly because they want you to be able to contracept and fornicate and have adult. It's all sexual since they want to, they want to approve. But the, the thing, I mean, it really is. But the thing that's crazy about it is in order to go about doing it, they have to create the two spheres. And the two spheres of the two kingdoms you is a, it, Martin Luther came up 
with in, in order to understand like, yeah, there's the sphere of faith alone. And then there's the sphere of human action, right? Faith and works. And so as Catholics, we get stuck with because salvation by faith alone, right? Is one of the, the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. So for Catholics who argue with Protestants, what do we say? Well, it's works. You got to do works to be saved. And it's like, we're not Pelagian heretics. We, we don't believe you earn your salvation. So speaking about morality, almost every Christian document has to come back to this point, which is you can't earn salvation. Right. You can't earn eternal life. So at the end of 11, he says, but if God alone is the good, no human effort, not even the most rigorous observance of the commandments succeeds in fulfilling the law. That is acknowledging the Lord as God and rendering him the worship due to him alone. This fulfillment can come only from a gift of God, the offer of a share in the divine goodness revealed and communicated in Jesus. So why do we evangelize? To make men good, to make women good, and, right? Yeah, right, right. And why would you evangelize a just man? Who doesn't know Jesus? Because a just justice is not enough. Yeah. Ooh, I love it. Mm. I love it. That's why I, I love this one guy talking about Aristotle. He said, I don't know if Aristotle ever would have accepted Christ. Right. Because he would think himself sufficient. I have all of these virtues. Yeah. Right. And it's like, but you don't have Christ's virtues. Right. Right. You 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 absolutely hate humility, right? Right. <laughs> so that's why Aristotle cannot be brought into Christianity by Thomas Aquinas without significant modification. Right. But this idea of like, no, I'm sufficient. It's like, no, you're not. You're radically not sufficient. Yeah. Because yeah. God's plan for you is not that you live a good enough life. God's plan for you is you live the divine life. How do you earn that? How do you earn eternity? Not smoking. <laughs> All right, let's go on. Let's go on. We got about, uh, so just so you know, we're going through chapter one here. If you're following along, we're on about paragraph 12, 13, um, to really start to dive in. So Dave mentioned the first tablet, which is the law of, of, uh, the worship of God, getting a right ordering with God. And it's funny because this is where, or not funny, but this is where paragraph 12 comes into play where the Pope is saying, listen, the law inscribed on the human heart is called the natural law. And that still applies as Catholics. You don't get to say, well, there's no such thing as the natural law. You don't get to say that in the Catholic church. Like that, and how insane is that? Yeah, it's, I know. Like what, what kind of a God do you think we worship? Right? Like he, it, it would be like him tricking us. Like it, it's, it's not like a Greek God, you know, why would it be written on our hearts if it's not? It's, and yeah. I love actually his reflection where you've heard in Jeremiah, where um, I think it's Jeremiah, oh, I'm going to butcher this now, I'm going to feel like an idiot. Jeremiah 32, where he talks about, the and behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, where I will write the law on their hearts. I will do something new, says the yeah, Lord, right? right? So the new thing that he's doing, the new covenant that he makes, right, is Jesus giving the Holy Spirit. That's the new law inscribed in our hearts. But the the amazing thing the Pope does is he says, right, right, right. So he's not saying in the new covenant, we no longer obey the law. He's saying in the new covenant, we're going to take the law written on stony tablets, which symbolizes the stony hearts of Israel and all humanity. And I'm going to write it onto your heart in the blood of Jesus Christ. Like that's what I'm going to do. So the Pope isn't saying, Hey, now that we have Christ and we have grace, we no longer need the law, which this is one of his major contentions. Oh no, we desperately need the law. It's the first condition of following Christ. Yeah, I, I want to keep just going back to this, that a fundamental misunderstanding of Catholics is that, and, and I'm going to throw a bone to Gomer here about atonement theology. Go on. Is that we accept a Protestant understanding of the atonement. A lot of Catholics do. Yeah, a lot yeah. of even DREs that I've talked to or yeah. catechists accept a Protestant understanding, which is Christ covers our sins. Yeah. This document is the opposite of Christ covers our sins. This is 
God is going to give you a new heart uh, and a new spirit and yeah. you will live the divine life. Yeah. So the, the big turn in Protestant theology, they all start with the satisfaction theory of atonement from St. Anselm. But then Luther and Calvin will take it so far to say, well, Jesus paid my debt, therefore I don't have to. And his right, as my sin is imputed legally to him, his righteousness is imputed legally to me. It's called forensic righteousness. And we say as Catholics, no, 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 that is, that is a false gospel. And that this is condemned. Christ's righteousness is imparted to me right? That's the new law. That's the law of the gospel. That is the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says, who has been poured into our hearts. Jesus doesn't just justify us as a declaration. His words, because he is the word, actually makes come about the thing he declares. So when he declares us righteous, he makes us righteous. So it's not snow covered dung hills, right? But the snow goes in and cleans it all, right? That's gross. That's gross. Okay. It's a little smelly, but it's fine. It's fine. So this is why Jesus says to the rich young ruler, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, the Lutheran side of it would say the commandments were given because we couldn't keep them and we would recognize our need for a savior. Right. And there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, there really is a lot of truth to that. Meh. But, and the Pope will take up this, you cannot say the commandments are an unattainable ideal. For God cannot command that which is impossible. Right. And, and so God gives us the very ability to keep the law. Yeah. And, and the grace of the and, gospel. And as we'll see, as he continues this like meditation on this, it's not even like the rich young man says, look, I've kept all the commandments. Yep. What still do I lack? And the Pope, uh, he says, and yet even though he is able to make this reply, even though he has followed the moral ideal seriously and generously from childhood, the rich young man knows that he is still far from the goal. Mm. Before the person of Jesus, he realizes that he is still lacking something. And this is what I meant by why would we evangelize the just man who doesn't know Jesus? Because Jesus is the lacking thing. Yeah. And when you think about this in terms of evangelization, there are people who are so wounded and broken that they know they need a savior right? They know they need a savior. And this young man is typical of the honest, even noble seeker. Right? Yeah, he right. is coming to Jesus. He's calling him good teacher. He's asking him questions, not to test him, but right. to enter, to enter into life. Like he wants to know. And so Jesus, this is a part of us as evangelists, like as we're talking with people and discipling people, we need to weigh their heart. And like, like, you know, when you're working with someone one-on-one, -on -one, like where they're resistant. Right. Yeah. And this guy seems like I'm here, I'm here, but this is also the master at work where he goes right to that point of resistance at the end of the story and says, okay, if you would be perfect, go sell all you have and come follow me. So, but, yeah. So, so he, so he continues on in that paragraph. We right? could literally talk about this for days. So he <laughs> continues on that paragraph. What paragraph are you on? Uh, we're, I'm on 16. Okay. 16. Wow. Well, and and he, the, if you, if you wish to, to be perfect, right, that's mm -hmm. the title of the paragraph. And I think like this is another thing that's really lacking in yeah. in ministry, in evangelization. Okay, and that is this. I, I think I talked about this on the podcast one time before. I told you I had a, a conversation with a chancellor and a and a rector of a seminary, and I was telling that they were talking about the issue of pornography in seminary right now. Oh yeah. And so I was saying like, well, what about like a propedeutic year without any technology whatsoever? Yeah. Like, why don't we just add another year on? And just see, you know, and their answer to me was, 
that's too, it's too much. Like men are not going to become priests if they have to do like, it's too much. And it's like, that's so did dumb. you ever read the rich young man? That's <laughs> like, so dumb. right. Because it, well, did you ever read the gospel? Because it's like, people are asking like, okay, how do I follow every letter of the law? And, and I want to make sure I can follow it like perfectly, but, but just that. And Jesus comes along and says, you should be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect mm-hmm. and introduces the beatitudes, yeah. right? Which is the new law, right? Okay. Yeah. And, and, and in which case no one, it, it has an unending aspect to it, right? Yeah. I mean, you cannot covet your neighbor's goods only so much, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it ends, but you know, happy are the, are the poor, right? I mean, that that's infinite. Yeah. The T.S. Eliot said the wisdom of poverty is infinite. Ooh, right. That's cool. Isn't that a great quote? Yeah. yeah and it was a GK Chesterton. So that was nice. <laughs> I'm trying to vary it up. I'm trying to vary it up. <laughs> but, um, okay. So getting back to what you're talking about in terms of moral formation of Catholics, like uh, in paragraph 16, conscious of the young man's yearning for something greater, which would transcend a legalistic interpretation of the commandments. The good teacher invites him to enter into the path of perfection. So what you were talking about with, um, the seminary that refused to get rid of technology, right? Number one, I think everyone needs to detox. We all, like most people are addicted to their screens and all this stuff, myself included. But it was interesting. Someone sent me two or an email with two links to it. And it said, click this first and this one second. And the first one was a link to- Is the, that all it said? Yes. It was about I month. would never click it. Was about it. Okay. It was, it was Brian Jones, the liturgy okay. coordinator. Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. So this was not a Peter Kwasniewski article, but uh, it said, um, so he said, click this one first. And it was the Russian Orthodox Church of America. And it was their seminary. And I clicked it and you watch it. And so let's contrast what your bishop and rector said to you with this. It is a video made of their like three years before they're allowed to enter formal instruction in seminary. They have to live at a monastery, which has, I don't think it has, I think it has electricity, but it doesn't have heat. So the, the, the seminarians in their first, second, and third year have to go out in the snow, chop down trees, chop up firewood. They have to prepare the meals, cook the food, do all this stuff. And the guy said, we are not the voiceover, right? said, we are not here to form like academics. We are here to form the special forces in the kingdom of God. Whoa. And so the whole thing, and then the second link was a U.S. seminary, Catholic seminary, and it was like, we here live according to the four pillars of intellectual, moral, spiritual, and human formation. And, it's, and it shows all these smiling guys and matching eating polos. Eating a big steak and like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like And it's lobster. like, well, they're playing ping pong and yeah, all this right? stuff, and it's like, we believe in Well, do you remember when we were younger <laughs> when people would say, be a Jesuit, see the world? Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. And I used to always think like, yeah, I'll see the world as a pilot or something like that. Why do I have to do that? This is, but but honestly, in all, like, well, yeah, let's go on. Well, paragraph 13, the Pope brought up, this is just an interesting aside. The Pope brought up, as we near the end of our segment, the Pope brought up a very fascinating thing that I never saw before in reading The Rich Young Man dozens of times, which is when the guy asked him what commandments, Jesus rattles off not the first tablet, he only rattles off questions he of does, the second right. tablet. That's right. And so in paragraph 13, this is a cool meditation. He says, they are some of the commandments belonging to the so-called second tablet of the Decalogue, the summary and foundation of which is a commandment of love of neighbor. You shall love the na- your neighbor as yourself. In this commandment, we find a precise expression of the singular dignity of the human person. Again, one of the most common themes in JP2's writings. 
the only creature that God wanted for its own sake, which is a quote from Sirach. The commandments thus present the basic condition for love of neighbor. At the same time, they are the proof of that love. They are the first necessary step on the journey towards freedom, its starting point. And then he quotes 1 John where he says, if any man says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. And one of the things that was an interesting contrast at the time of the early church was you would have in Roman society men who hated their brother but were right with the deities because they would offer sacrifices. And Jesus says, if any of you have anything against your brother, leave your sacrifice at the altar, go and reconcile with your brother, and then come and offer your sacrifice. It is almost as if God cares about human community, right? (laughs) It is almost as if human community is a reflection of the divine trinity. It is almost as if the kingdom and the church matter to God, right? And so we got to, we got to start running through this, but, um, in paragraph 18, I uh, deeply moved by studying this. Those who live by the flesh experience God's law as a burden and indeed as a denial or at least a restriction of their own freedom. On the other hand, those who are impelled by love and walk by the spirit and <laughs> walk by the spirit, Dave has that underlined too, and who desire to serve others, finding God's law the fundamental and necessary way in which to practice love as something freely chosen and freely lived out. Now, here's the deal, brothers and sisters. Sometimes the church is teaching on, let's say, gay marriage, abortion, contraception, um, divorce and remarriage, again, all about sex. These are the difficult issues to talk about in society because everything, the conversation around it's at a fever pitch yelling match. And so often as evangelists, we avoid this. We hide behind the kerygma, as Livio Molina says, uh, Monsignor Livio Molina, we hide behind the kerygma because we're scared to do this. But if we are scared to do this, we're not calling people out of darkness into light. What we're saying is Jesus maybe was lying. We're saying that Jesus really doesn't have a plan for their life, for your welfare, not for your woe. We're saying like, well, you know what? If Jesus is calling me to renounce my same-sex actions, right? If he's calling me to renounce that in order to walk with him, like I, I don't want to bring that up to someone. And, you know, like, or when I do um, our RCIA work and people have been married like three, four, five times, and it's like, I could just let it go and not bring up annulments and stuff that's now going to take this person another five years to get it done, right? I have had people who have renounced sex in their civil unions so oh, yeah. that they can oh, receive yeah. the sacraments immediately. I mean, because they have the oh, option yeah. of not renouncing sex and staying in their in their sinful union until they, you know, get all their marriage stuff fixed and then they'll enter the church. But the majority of people are like, no, 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 this is important to my discipleship. But I had a, um, a person at the tribunal who I was talking with these marriage issues over, and I said, why do you tell people to get their marriage stuff situated first before they become Catholic? And they said, because people just won't, like, they can't have, it's, it's always fornication or always adultery. And I said, so what you're saying is either we don't call them on to holiness and renounce that, or we just let it slide because it's all going to be taken care of when they go to confession anyway. That's and so he said, And he, he said to me, and I'll never forget this. He said, do you really have these conversations with people? And I said, yes. And he goes, honestly, you're probably the only one in the archdiocese. And I was like, I don't think that's true. Number one, I don't think that's true. But number two, I was like, how sad. I said, are you able to keep chaste as a priest? And he was like, of course, that is not the same thing. And I'm like, then why can't these lay people for six that's months? Not, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Of course it's the same. That, that yeah, right. right. And so, but you have this conflict of like, but we live in a soup of toxic lust, right? And where you're always told all the time, because you have a desire, you have the right to gratify it. And the church is saying, okay, but there are some times that if we're living by the flesh, and St. Paul calls it the law of sin, the law of iniquity written in my very members, my bodily flesh, right? 
I will view God's law as a burden. I will view contraception, the church's teaching on contraception as nothing more than a burden, right? I will view all of this stuff, right? Maybe even, let's just take it out of the sexual context, which is very difficult to do sometimes, uh, but <laughs> for you, for me, I know, I know <laughs> one track mind. Um, but the idea of like greed, like some people don't want to reconcile the way they accumulate money with the gospel. And so they'll just bracket it off and dismiss it. And it's like, no, 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 no. You're thinking with the flesh. It's time to start thinking with the spirit here. Like we really need to do, no one thinks they're greedy, but it's like, come on, are, are, is this fraud that you're committing? Is this like, you know, people yeah, need to look and, at this. And this is where accompaniment comes into play so importantly in evangelization that, you know, I mean, just a natural human inclination, it's easier to obey someone that you love. You know, if you have a boss that you just can't stand, everything they say to do is is awful you know even if you know you have to do it if it's a good thing to do it's awful but if you love a boss like you want to you want to do those things and so in accompaniment we have to like yeah lay the burden of morality which is not really a burden okay but it, it it's felt that way it's yeah. felt that way when it's given and also make sure that they understand that we have this relationship where we get the power uh to be able to fulfill the law and eventually it won't be a burden at all in fact it'll be freedom Yes. And so how does Christ end his conversation with a rich young man? If you will be perfect, go sell your possessions and follow me and give it to the poor and follow me. Right. So let's think about the mission of the redeemer where he says the missionary must have a love of poverty where they're detached from all their possessions in order to have the freedom to follow Christ. And he, and as Dave pointed out, if he says that we're all called to be missionaries and then he's saying missionaries have to do this, what are we doing here? Well, in the same thing, here's that golden thread that runs throughout here. He's saying, if we, if the rich young man stands for all of us, which is why he's nameless, then guess what? Go sell all you have, give to the poor and come follow me. And it's amazing because we don't want to do this, but Jesus is emphasizing the point with men. This is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so he says this, I love this line. To imitate and live out the love of Christ is not possible for man by his own strength alone. So faith or so works without grace is impossible, right? To truly please God, good works, it doesn't exist without God's grace. He becomes capable of this love only by virtue of a gift received. Love and life, according to the gospel, cannot be thought of first and foremost as a kind of precept because what they demand is beyond man's abilities. They are possible only as a result of the gift of God who heals restores and transforms the human heart by his grace. Okay, we're gonna roll out to a wonderful commercial by our fine friends over at Ascension. I just wanna mind everyone, please, 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 text EKSB to 33777 to get onto our email list. As we do the seasonal thing, we wanna make sure that you are staying informed. We will be right back with the conclusion of this first of two episodes of Veritatis Splendor and some practical takeaways. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ chose corrupt, broken, imperfect, sinful men to be the foundation of his church. And because these broken, imperfect men chose to remain in relationship with Jesus, they became saints. And they were used by Jesus to transform hearts and minds 2,000 years later. I invite you to check out my book, Broken and Blessed where you'll find practical tools to overcome habitual sin, to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and to walk with an imperfect church 
toward a perfect God who is calling all of us to perfection over time. To order the paperback book or audiobook, Broken and Blessed, visit ascensionpress.com or Amazon. All right, y'all, welcome back. We're going to wrap up this first chapter of Veritatis Splendor. Um, and I think it's very fitting that he ends with a reflection, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age, because we cannot live the law without the grace of Jesus Christ. So our response of love is the beginning of the moral life, but it is a response to the love of God. So it is a loving response, right? So the love of God is poured into our hearts. We can respond with love. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the natural law does not exhaust morality. As Dave said, right? You can exhaust thou shalt not kill, right? You can exhaust that. Like, okay, I haven't killed anyone. Great. But you cannot exhaust the beatitude. So what the Pope wants to do is show us how if we are truly to enter into life, the way of perfection is the way we must walk. So the way I always try to teach it to middle school kids is the commandments are like the boundaries of a sidewalk, but they're not the actual walking of the sidewalk. That's the virtues, that's the fruits of the spirit, that's the gifts of the spirit, and more, most importantly of all, that's the Beatitudes. And the Pope actually starts off this encyclical by saying, I purposely delayed writing this until after the catechism was published so I can reference it in my moral teaching, right? And it's so important because my favorite part of the catechism, paragraph 17, 17, 17, 18, they're all about the Beatitudes. And what does it say? The Beatitudes depict the countenance of Christ. They portray his charity. They are the vocation that we all have. They are paradoxical promises that sustain hope in the midst of tribulation. All of these wonderful things. What are the Beatitudes? It's Christ's own self-description that he's saying, you will not find Beatitude, happiness, Beatitudo in Latin is happiness. You will not find happiness unless you follow me. And guess what? I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Yeah, gaze upon me. He also uh I do you know, right he, now. And, I'm gazing and, upon you in this you, apartment. You you mentioned this earlier, but the Pope uh goes on in this paragraph and he he mentions exactly what you said earlier. He says, No damage must be done to the harmony yep. between faith and life. The unity of the church is damaged not only by Christians who reject or distort the truths of faith, but also by those who disregard the moral obligations to which they are called by the gospel. We are in a crisis of truth right now. Yeah. And many, many people out there that you serve are, are not necessarily formal heretics, right? Right. But they are living that way. They're living completely outside the church's teaching. And so we are not proclaiming truth as, as a whole. Yeah. And as G.K. Chesterton one time said, I don't want a church that is right when I'm right. I want a church that's right when I'm wrong. And so fidelity to the magisterium especially in morality, is the focus point of the major dissension in the church today, right? We are dissenting from the church's teaching because we want to live as we want, not as the way the Lord wants. But there be dragons that way. And so our focus and the focus of JP2 is he wants holy people. He wants people walking on the way of perfection. When was the last time, just like we talked about Catholics who you never hear Jesus is the reconciliation between the father and us. Like he is the, like, we don't hear that language of be the beautiful language of atonement in our Christian walk. So too, do we neglect the way of perfection in Christian moral teaching like perfection? Oh, that's like spiritual spirituality and all this stuff. It's like, no, 
That's what it means to walk the moral path. It's the end of the sidewalk, right? It terminates in union with God for all eternity begun here in baptism, right? right, right. So that's where we want to go. So now we have some practical takeaways that we want to do. Dave, you get to go first, mostly because you're panicking right now. <laughs> what no, would be one I think, practical I think, takeaway? You know, um, one thing that's really important is I think probably a lot of you, if you're in evangelizing relationships, you're withholding that that aspect of it, the moral aspect of it, some, some, some teaching that you're afraid to get across. And, and I, I've been there. I get that. I totally understand. But now's the time, you know, uh, to act in love in, in true charity and to take that stumbling block away from the person that you're trying to bring to Jesus Christ, uh, and, and to do it in charity Mm -hmm. and to do it in full confidence that their relationship with Jesus will enable them to have that new heart, to embrace that law. Yeah. Uh, The second I would say is a reflection on your own life and examination. Like where do you find the hardest part of keeping the moral law of God? What commandments do you find the most difficult? Sit down with a good, long examination of conscience, not just a short one, like get a good long one and go through it and actually ask yourself like, why is this one so hard for me to keep? You know, we talk about sexual sins, not just because they're common and, and a very easy analog, but it often entraps people into these behavioral addictions so easily. And so the idea is, okay, let's like, if, if these are a struggle or something analogous to it, these addictive and compulsive behaviors, like, why, why did I fall into this? Why do I do this? Why do I return to this? You know, and then say, why am I not getting the help I need? Why haven't I set up one priest to be my recurring confessor? Why am I resistant to the idea of going to uh, counseling for this betterhelp.com slash foxes. Why am I, (laughs) why am I not addressing these things? What is it about me that's afraid of actually finding healing because God heals, restores, and transforms. And finally, uh, one of the most common conversations you have as an evangelist and as in a church worker is people say, well, I love the church and I believe everything the church teaches, but this one thing, you might be that person. Yeah. One of our listeners might be, ha- you might have that one thing. And my first question to these people is always, do, have you ever actually read what the church actually teaches about oh, that? Yeah. If you have something, you know, in your holster, whatever that butt is, you know, whatever that I love all the church except for whatever that is, that exception is, you really need to read and to, to understand with the mind of the church why the church teaches that. Yeah. Many people leave the church because of that, but, but yes. And so you studying it, maybe it's not you, but you studying it will help you give good, solid Christ centered arguments and not emotional. Why don't you follow Jesus? Right? So, all right, ladies and gentlemen, this has been our first of just two episodes on very talkative splendor. Stay tuned next week. We're going to hit you with another one and it is going to be awesome. It's going to blow your mind before (laughs) we get kicked out of this hotel room in 58 minutes. God bless y'all. God bless.